I think it's important to remember humans just have a negativity bias. Clicks come from conflict. And so we have to be very conscious and very intentional in paying attention to the positive trends. Welcome to How We Win. All over the country, people are doing extraordinary things. We don't agonize, we organize. We've won some battles, but we still have more to do. We've got a lot of good news happening this week. Biden has signed the infrastructure bill into law. Justice is being served to Bannon, Alex Jones, and others. And the world is coming together to address our climate crisis. Helping us out to discuss it all and also how we discuss it with each other are the co-hosts of the Pantsuit Politics podcast and co-authors of I Think You're Wrong, But I'm Listening, A Guide to Grace-Filled Political Conversations, Sarah Stewart-Holland and Beth Silvers. I'm Steve Pearson, and this is How We Win. Sarah and Beth, thank you so much for helping us out on How We Win. Uh, it's great to see you all. And, uh, well, our listeners can't see you, but I can. <laughs> <laughs> and, and catch up with you a bit. How are you all doing? Doing great. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for inviting us back. It's always fun to be here. Yay. And, and you all have been so supportive uh, of Swing Left, and we've done some fun letter-writing parties and stuff like that leading up to the election. We haven't had a chance to catch up since... Biden was elected. And since we uh, have the majority in Congress, and now is a perfect time to do it to catch up a little bit because we have some really great things to talk about. We just signed an infrastructure, a huge infrastructure bill, which, you know, people uh, will get in. I want to get into like why people don't want to celebrate these big, huge, massive things. But this is something that we do need to celebrate and talk about this week. And you all have had a great series about infrastructure, a special podcast series that you did all about uh, infrastructure. And actually, this week's podcast I just listened to also um, that just came out today as we're taping uh, is excellent as well. Um, How are you all feeling about this bill, this law now? So excited. We spent the summer really immersed in research about why we need an infrastructure package. And we tried to go in that just completely open-minded. Where should these dollars go? What are the needs? How how could dollars flow most effectively through our systems to build greater infrastructure? So after all of that time and work, seeing something come to fruition just felt so good. It was one of the most fun podcasts we got to record in our whole time doing this because it was like we identified this need with a lot of precision and then the government stepped up to meet the need. Yeah. And I I think it it also is important to highlight uh, for our listeners, for our warriors, volunteers, activists, we did this. You know, there is a lot of hand-wringing about uh, mansion and cinema, and there's a lot of hand-wringing about uh, we wanted it to be more and the compromise and all of that. Um, This is a massive package, and it would not have been possible if we didn't elect Democrats and and control the majority. We know this because Trump every week was infrastructure week during the Mm -hmm. Trump administration, and even for the two years when they had um, all three – branches of government under their control, they were not able to get this done. So everyone deserves a big high five and pat on the back for this transformative piece of of legislation. 
Yeah, and I think it's just important to abandon the winner-take-all mentality when it gets to governance. Elections are winner-take-all, um, for sure, until the next election, right. <laughs> um, when we get another chance. But the governance part is not. Like, for the other side to get something and you still to count it as a victory is absolutely available to all of us. Um, you know, negotiations are just that. Whatever came out in the original proposal was never promised to us. Mm-hmm. We should celebrate what we got, which is far more than we have ever expected out of infrastructure funding. It will have impact in every single community across this country. Um, and compromise is necessary for governance. And I think that that just remembering when to to sort of take that <laughs> take that no prisoner stance inside an election and when to uh, pump the brakes on it a little bit when it comes to governance is really important to a healthy democracy and, and, and to prevent burnout among people who care so deeply and work so hard for these issues. Absolutely. And this happened really fast, right? Within the first year of Biden's administration. And this isn't like one thing. This is for roads and bridges, railroads, public transit, airports, waterways and ports, road safety, Electric vehicles. There's a lot of great climate stuff in here. There'll be even more when we get the Build Back Better um, reconciliation package passed, which I really believe we will pretty soon. Um, Water power, broadband, huge. uh, Broadband is huge. It's going to give access to education and Internet for so many children who don't have it right now, which has been especially highlighted during the pandemic. So. But this has happened really, really fast. I mean, legislation doesn't get passed quickly in uh, in government. You, you said, as you said, with governance, there's a lot of moving parts to it. I mean, we all watched Schoolhouse Rock as a kid, so we should know this. <laughs> I really want us to get out of this belief that once elected, people have approximately five minutes to govern before <laughs> the next election cycle begins. Because uh, it doesn't serve us. This is complex. Part of what we learned creating our infrastructure series is how highly decentralized infrastructure is across the United States. That's particularly true about broadband, which the government has never made a major investment in. It's yeah. true about our water systems. So doing this well, let's say you had all Democrats in Congress. It still should take months to negotiate a package of this size and figure out how to direct this funding. So to have it done in year one, I think is amazing. Um, We just spoke with Adi Tomer of the Brookings Institute about this package. And he said that infrastructure has always been thought of as a Washington fantasy. And for it to Mm. have been brought to reality this quickly with these narrow majorities in Congress, it's it's a real achievement. And everyone who participated constructively in getting to this outcome should feel extremely accomplished. I agree. And, um, you know, we should continue to call our representatives and thank them for passing this and uh, make sure they do pass the um, reconciliation bill as well. I do think that's going to happen. I, you know, I love prognosticating from the studio, but um, but it really, uh, you know, this has been a two-part process. And, and um, uh, I think the next step is for us to have these conversations with people. This will be part of our call to action for the week is for really for us to celebrate this this week and talk to our neighbors and friends and, and make sure that they know Democrats made this happen because – for sure, Republicans are going to be taking credit for it. And to be clear, this was a bipartisan bill. 13 Mm -hmm. Republicans voted for it in the House. 
as we are recording this, the House Republican Caucus is talking about what to do with those 13 Republicans. Should they strip them of their committee assignments because they they went along with what should be a nonpartisan investment in our country? But yeah, we we need to be making our, our case and talking to our friends and neighbors about this. People need to know what we got done. Well, and here's the thing. Not only should Democrats take credit for this, I'm not 100 percent sure I'm mad even at the Republicans who voted against it out there talking about it. And here's why. Because when they are, they're undercutting their main sort of fear and anxiety driver, which is government's the problem. Government's always the problem. Government spending is always the problem. Mm. So I'm not mad at any voice out there saying, look at how the government's going to make a positive impact in your community through this infrastructure spending. If they want to spread that message, that's fine, because I think that ultimately does swing things left, because their central narrative since Reagan has been that, you know, don't trust the government. The government is the problem. And so I'm here for any messaging out there in all parts of the country that say, here's a positive thing the government has done. Yeah. I'm confused about what our taxes are supposed to do. If we mm. can't pass spending bills like this, like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like if, if we can't fix our roads and have clean water uh, and and air to breathe, then what are our taxes for? And this is a pretty nonpartisan issue. But um, I want to talk about uh, what you all have always done so well. And what I appreciate about you so much is um, the nuance and grace that you bring to the conversation around politics and around our country. Um, And your show last week really struck a chord with me because you were talking about the uh, struggle with the good news cycle and, and how to navigate those conversations. Because, you know, we're at undeniably a really scary place in, for our planet, uh, existentially, uh, and for our country, uh, for our democracy. It, It is teetering on the edge and um, uh, autocrats are doing everything they can to take over. So this is real and scary. But like weeks like this week, when we actually pass some really transformative, important legislation, we have a good uh, week for justice this week. Bannon was indicted. Uh, That's fun. I enjoy that schadenfreude. (laughs) Um, Alex Jones was uh, guilty by default of all the Sandy Hook uh, defamation suits. Britney Spears, uh, her conservativeship ended, you know, so there's been some good stuff there. We're still waiting to hear what will, you know, I think probably be some very disappointing uh, uh, verdicts with uh, Rittenhouse and the Ahmaud Aubrey trial and those that are Agreements at COP26. Don't forget that. Right. Yes. Agreements at COP26. And uh, we're going to be hearing more about that. So much good stuff. So how do we navigate this existential place that we're in and also celebrate the wins and and enjoy the good news that that we have going on right now? My first answer is to remember that most people want to be part of things that have a spirit of joy around them. And so I think that just pragmatically, if you want more people to vote for Democrats, Democrats have to be bearers of good news sometimes Mm -hmm. and often have a reason to be bearers of good news. I think it's also important to figure out what we want to classify as existential and what isn't, because I find that I have more success talking to people in my life about climate change when I say this is a threat to how we live our lives 
versus a threat to all of humanity forever. Mm. It's a threat to our way of life. We are going to have to make extremely difficult changes to what you expect life to look like day to day if we don't do something about this. And then they kind of go, oh, well, like I can I can talk about that. And climate change is one of those issues where compromise is necessary to move forward in the dramatic ways that we have to move forward, even as we feel compromise is kind of the enemy because it's such an urgent issue. So delineating where we want to use those kind of framings of disaster, I think is important. And the third thing I'll say is just trying to keep all of our questions in perspective. I spent a lot of time this morning looking at the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. And that is such a hard one because I fear the message that a not guilty verdict will send, but trials aren't supposed to be about public policy, right? The trials are supposed to answer the question, did the state prove its case to justify depriving this person of freedom? And way too often we fail to realize that standard in trials affecting disproportionately people experiencing poverty, people suffering from mental health issues, people of color. All of those people who deserve a, a more just system are not benefited when we turn Kyle Rittenhouse's trial into a matter of public policy. I have no idea how I would vote if I were on that jury. I know as a citizen, I feel that he had no business being in Kenosha and, and shouldn't have done this, and that the public policy that could be set by this is pretty bad. But I cannot let my mental state, sorry for that long detour, I can't let my no. mental state of how the world is be held by a jury in Kenosha in a trial that I have no control over today. And I cannot believe that the entirety of the education and progress that's happened around systemic racism over the last two years is lost if this jury returns a verdict that feels disappointing. Yeah. I think it's important to remember humans just have a negativity bias. Hmm. It served us for, you know, millions of years as we were out there surviving. And the news um, certainly does, too. Yeah. And the news benefits from a negativity bias and clicks come from conflict. And so we have to be very conscious and very intentional in paying attention to the positive trends. I, I read in a really great book called Humankind that... You know, for the past 25 years, newspapers could have published the headline, over 100,000 people uh, moved out of poverty every day for like 25 years. That could have been the headline, right? Because that's what statistically was happening. And I just think it's hard to see the, the big positive trends and perspective when we're, you know, inundated with daily negative conflict. And so you just have to be very intentional about it and very purposeful and remembering that I'll never forget listening to Krista Tippett on on being one time say I just remind myself when I'm reading the news that this is not the whole story mm. of everybody's human existence and that there's a lot of um, and you know I've lived that I grew up in a community where we had a high school shooting when I was a junior in high school I know that the headlines are not reflective of the entirety of the experience on the ground in a very personal and visceral way and still I can find myself falling for the anxiety and fear narratives. And it's just, a, you know, especially as a person who cares deeply about politics and consumes a lot of political news, I just have to constantly remind myself of that. 
Yeah. Um, I try to balance it in my own life, especially the news consumption, because for all of us who you know have political podcasts and need to research and stay up on everything, it, you know, uh, I, I do a, a news break after I release my show for uh, a couple of couple of days where I just step away and watch stupid stuff on TV instead or whatever, you know. Not really. There's still a device in my hand that sends me alerts and I'm on Twitter. But mm-hmm. but I, I the, the other thing that I want to add to this that I have really found in my life and I have found with this community of activists and volunteers that I work with, um, and I know that our listeners have experienced this too, um, act, I say this on the show, action is the best antidote to anxiety. It really is. And I have met the most joyous group of compatriots in this work. When you show up and do something uh, bigger than yourself, and uh, whether it's just to make a few phone calls for a campaign, or if it's to go stack chairs at an event, or hand out water, or uh, volunteer in your community, or wherever it is, uh, being part of the solution and getting out of yourself uh, is a huge alleviator of that anxiety. And it, for me, it enables me to, I don't want to say compartmentalize, but maybe I don't have a better way to put it. Um, you know, what this existential scary threat in the world and how I'm living my life and the people around me. Um, because we do need joy. This is a marathon, not a sprint. If the last five years have taught us anything and what we see coming, coming forward and, and what the work we have ahead for the midterms and then the next presidential election, you know, um, this is a marathon. This is, you know, should be part of our life's work is to be a citizen and to be engaged. But um, that means we need to celebrate and find love and happiness at the same time, especially for activists, because we don't want to get burned out. I don't know if that resonates with you all, but that's been the case with me. Absolutely. We talk all the time about just finding your work to do um, as a way to not become overwhelmed by news consumption, to remember that we are all part of something that's like a great big river and we just have to put our good stuff in the river and we know that it will get diluted by other things but mm-hmm. we also don't know how it will appear downstream and and what ways it's changing the overall river and and all we can control is you know doing the best we can and if we step outside that work too often it diminishes our ability to do it. You know, we can't contribute to that river if we're just constantly overwhelmed and burned out. So I right. think that's that action is that antidote is a beautiful framing of that. Yeah. Um, you all have an event coming up uh, Thursday night, the holiday huddle. Um, you're gonna go. You're gonna go on Zoom and talk to people about grace-filled holiday conversations. I'm heading uh, back to D.C. to be with my family, um, who, you know, fortunately, we see, most of us see eye-to-eye politically, but that doesn't mean that conversations are easy in my household. Um, uh, so can you talk about what this event is? And, I mean, you, you don't want to give away everything you're going to talk about, but can you um, sort of broad stroke uh, what you're going to discuss? You know, psychologically, going back to family gatherings is just sort of fraught in the best of situations, right? In the best of circumstances when we haven't been away from each other for months or years. Uh, We're dealing with intergenerational expectations. Um, We're dealing with the the particular uh, phenomenon where you go back home and you regress in age and all of a sudden you feel like the 15-year-old whose mom gets constantly on our nerves 
There's mm-hmm. sibling conflict, conflict in parenting styles, um, mm-hmm. conflict as and approaches to COVID. So far, um, I'm t- feeling worse now and scared. Yeah, I'm getting there, I promise. <laughs> uh, co- conflicts in, you know, politics. And yeah. especially when our, our politics are so driven by identity um, in this day and age that when we're around people who are supposed to, you know, according to, to all the Hallmark cards and our own cultural expectations, love us and accept us no matter what. And then we feel like they're rejecting this real fundamental part of who we are. It's fraught. It's hard. Um, and so, you know, the, the primary goal we always have is to, to look at people and say, you're not alone. We know it's fraught. We know it's hard. There's a lot going on here. Human beings are complicated. Um, family relationships and dynamics are complicated. When you layer on a pandemic or politics, um, whatever the case may be, um, you are not wrong to feel stress or anxiety, to leave frustrated or have hurt feelings. Because we think, you know, it's it's what my friend calls uh, the parasite theory. If we j- Instead of keeping all that inside our own heads, if we talk about it together, if we say, this is what I always struggle with. How do you deal with that? Or this is a this is something this is a conversation I had last Thanksgiving that I felt like went in a positive direction and this is how I felt like we got there. Here's some techniques that work really honestly no matter the situation like reflective listening so people feel heard and don't escalate. Mm. Um and so I just think, you know, coming together with our community and and having that like communal moment where we say, yeah, I'm anxious about this too. Um, here's why I'm anxious. Here's what's worked. Here's what hasn't worked. Um, as we approach this time where we are going to spend some pretty intense moments together, um, and with people who we love and who are important to us, but we don't interact with on a day-to-day basis. And so we're just trying to sort of name that anxiety and give people tools to deal with it. So helpful. And by reflective listening, you mean repeating back to what mm-hmm. someone said so you acknowledge that they, that you heard them and understand what they're expressing to you? Yes. What I'm hearing is that you want me to confirm that I understand that the reflective listening definition is repeat. See what I just did there? I just reflective listened to you. Yeah. I did the same thing to you first, though. See, I was back. Yeah, I was reflecting to you. It works with, so good. It's, oh, it's creepy sometimes. Man, now we're very cl- much closer, too. I feel That's very right. close to you. Um, well, that's going to be a really valuable uh, thing for people to join. And uh, it's Thursday night, but it's going to be up for like a week so people can... Yeah, if you buy a ticket before the event starts, you'll have access to it before seven days afterwards. Cool. All right. Every week we, uh, on our show, talk about a hero of the week. So I don't want to let these heroes go unrecognized. So I'm going to talk about my hero of the week for this week. I don't know if you all are familiar with this gentleman, but today's hero of the week is author Jerry Craft. Uh, Four of the award-winning author's books uh, were included in a listing of 850 books being investigated by the Texas State Legislature. And Mm. despite attempts by lawmakers and some parents to remove his books from Texas schools, Craft says his books have actually gotten more attention Thanks to all of the controversies. So he's getting more attention for his books, selling more books. Um, So this is how controversial his books are. Kraft's books, New Kid and Class Act, follow the character Jordan Banks, a seventh grader navigating being one of the only students of color at a predominantly white private school. The Mm. stories are inspired by Kraft and his son's real life experiences. 
Growing up, Kraft said he didn't see characters like him in books, so he sought to create his own representation. So yeah, we should ban those books. We don't need to hear those stories, right? I, I don't know if this is a, a hero of the week or another opportunity for me to rant about how scary and backwards we are going um, with books being banned and the pushback against people who are so deeply ashamed of their own history that they don't even want to teach it in schools. But uh, I'm thrilled that the unintended consequence is that a, a great author like Jerry Craft is getting more recognition and selling more books and, and his great stories are, are, are reaching a wider audience. So Jerry Craft is our hero of the week. You know, I recognize that name and I was thinking why it's because he has come up, my daughter's on the academic team at her school and he has come up in quick recall questions. These, these books are being asked about in quick recall in Kentucky, if that makes anybody feel a little bit better, it's like, <laughs> it's like our jeopardy. Um, but I agree with you. I mean, if we go into hot, holiday huddle mode, I would say as these kinds of conversations come up, especially if you're sitting with people who see it differently than you, I would just start with how do we feel about book banning as a general matter? If you just hear book banning, does that strike you that things are going well and that we're moving in a direction that feels positive? Yeah, um, I, I would be interested to hear uh, a mixed group answer to that question because um, I can't conceive of that. I mean, it just seems so backwards. I mean, we've had so many like fictionalizations of this over the years and looking back on, you know, the... Uh, what we like to call the old days when they were burning books and it was like that was like the most horrible thing. I mean we saw, saw the Third Reich doing that too. I mean it was like this move into authoritarianism and control where that this book burning drumbeat has always uh, proceeded and now we're seeing it again which is – it's mind-blowing to me. But again, my point is uh, Jerry Craft, Hero of the Week. <laughs> Um, let's talk about our to-do list here, and uh, I'm curious if you all have any other things to add to this, but um, we briefly talked about talking to your friends, neighbors, everybody about the infrastructure package and really celebrating that and making sure that they know that this was an achievement that we did together by electing Democrats and that Democrats uh, really championed this and got it done and Biden got this done. The other thing that I – and I I, I'm terrible at asking for money. I'm the worst at that. Um, I, I never want this show to sound like a swing left infomercial. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but it is the end of the year when people are thinking about where are they going to do some of their giving. And, um, and what I really love about how swing left divvies up money is it goes – to the campaigns that really need uh, need the money the most. The close races, um, the money is going to uh, have a huge impact. And, um, and with so many pivotal races going on, it can be hard for people to decide what campaigns they want to donate to, where is their money going to make the biggest impact. So go to swingleft.org slash funds, and you can find different ways to donate to a congressional fund or to a Senate fund and know that that money is going to go directly to those campaigns that need it the most. Um, anything on your all's radar that people should be doing this week? I love sending thank you calls, letters, notes to your uh, Congress people who worked on this bill. Yeah, for sure. We, we give them a lot of guff and, uh, mm -hmm. and it's, you know, it's 
necessary a lot of the times to give them that guff, but we also uh, definitely want to shower them with praise because they get a lot less of that. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right, so we're going to wrap up as we always do with our reasons for hope. I didn't prep you all on this, um, but you're just hopeful, grace-filled people in general, so I know you'll be able to uh, to throw a couple out there. I'll start, though, to give you some time. My reason for hope today is uh, the White House has hosted its first summit of tribal nations since 2016. The summit, of course, coincides with National Native American Heritage Month. It's being hosted by the White House for the first time. Past conferences were held at the Department of the Interior. And probably goes without saying, but this, was not, this summit was not held during the Trump administration, during the previous Trump administration. What has come out of it so far, Biden is barring new drilling around a major Native American cultural site, which is both the right thing to do that uh, they have been fighting for for decades, but also good for our environment, um, and uh, put out an executive order directing Department of Justice, Interior, Homeland Security, and HHS to create a strategy to address the epidemic of missing and murdered indigenous peoples. Um, So some real efforts to recognize and fix what is probably the most marginalized group of Americans we have in our country. So, and again, Trump uh, decided not even to talk to them in in the last administration. So this gives me hope, again, um, that we are heading in a positive direction. That's my reason of hope for the week. Who wants to go next? Beth, Sarah, who's got a good reason for hope? Go ahead, Beth. I feel very hopeful that President Biden and Xi Jinping of China have had this constructive conversation that's being reported on. And I particularly feel hopeful because of how measured everyone is being in reporting on what the expectations were going in and what Mm. the progress is coming out. I think that bringing the temperature down between these two countries is the absolute best outcome. We all lose if that tension escalates. There are no winners available in a in a tremendous conflict between the United States and China. And so being willing to say, we aren't going to be best friends on the other side of this. We're not even walking away with a bunch of deliverables, but we're speaking to each other and having constructive conversation uh, makes me feel like there is a real foreign policy competence at work um, and, and a message to the public that's very helpful too. Just sometimes we're just trying to lower the temperature and, and that's good. That's great. And I would say the opposite about COP26. I feel good that the temperature in the room was so intense and that there were such strong emotions. People were crying. I'm a crier. It always seems like a good uh, <laughs> sign to me because instead of just being a a gathering of things where we talk and agree for appearances, the intensity tells me that there was real there were real stakes um, and that the agreement, again, not everybody's happy, but I can't fathom a gathering of the global community in which we leave where everyone is happy. So I think John Kerry is 100% right. Perfect is the enemy of good. I am happy that the global community came together um, with a realization of how high the stakes were. And that meant that everybody was really invested in the conversation, that everybody left a little angry. (laughs) I think that's weirdly kind of a good sign. So I'm incredibly hopeful coming out of COP26. I think that's great. And um, man, I mean, 
What a week. Like, it's so great to be talking about all of these positive Mm -hmm. developments. Progress. Progress. As imperfect as they are, you think about the last conversation that we had together. We were in a very, very different place. It was a fight for our lives, like everything being rolled back, all the progress. And, And here we are you know, with an embarrassment of reasons for hope this week. So (laughs) love it. Um, Sarah and Beth, you all are the best. Um, Of course, I hope all of our listeners also subscribe to Pantsuit Politics. It is uh, such an inspiring show. It's definitely inspired me in the work that we do here. Um, Thank you for being great partners with Swing Left. And um, I hope we get the chance to catch up uh, sooner rather than later. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Thank you, everybody, so much for joining us today. This is how we win. We win, of course, when we all get involved. What is your reason for hope? We want to hear from you. Of course, send us an email at podcast at swingleft.org or tweet to us at bluesboysteve and at Mariah underscore Craven. Please make sure you subscribe, rate, and review on Apple and wherever else you get your pods. Share our show with your friends and family. Check out our page at swingleft.org slash podcast. And of course, please sign up to volunteer. Maybe make an end-of-the-year donation to one of our funds at swingleft.org slash funds. So appreciate you being here with us this week. Mariah is back next week, so we will both see you then. <laughs>